Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13. We got a big section of scripture to cover today, and uh, so I'm going to need you to be on your game. Can you do that? Can you do that? Amen. All right, let's do it. All right. We're currently in a series entitled The Fullness of Life. It's a series that is rooted in John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, I have come that they, they means us, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Um, This is an abundant life, we might say, that is fruitful and victorious. And so far, we've looked at several key elements to a fruitful and abundant life. And they include, first of all, the foundation of it all, which is abiding in Christ. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, all right? Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. And so that led into the next segment of the series, which was the fruit of the Spirit. And we took our time working through Galatians 5, through 23. And now for some time, and this is the last sermon in this section of it, we've been talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And then looking ahead, we'll be dealing with the warfare of the Spirit. But as we finish the gifts of the Spirit, it's a topic so important that it's mentioned 155 verses in the Scriptures. And here in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul takes three whole chapters to talk about it. Why? Why does Paul give so much attention to spiritual gifts? And why should they matter to us? Well, because we will never become all that God intends for us to be until we learn to exercise all of the gifts that God has given to us. Now, that statement is so important, I'm going to repeat it again. We will never become all that God intends for us to be until we learn to exercise all of the gifts that God has given to us. It's true for us as individuals, but it is also true for us collectively as a church. Spiritual gifts are a key element to living a full or abundant life. And so, so far, we've defined spiritual gifts like this. Spiritual gifts are special abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit, to serve others for the glory of God. There are special abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to serve others for the glory of God. And when they are exercised biblically, some amazing things happen. This is what happens when we exercise our spiritual gifts. God is glorified. The church is edified or built up. Good triumphs over evil. And believers live full or abundant lives, which again is the theme of this sermon series. Now, the problem in our text today in 1 Corinthians 14, as we've been marching very deliberately through chapters 12, 13, and 14, in first century Corinth, spiritual gifts were not being exercised biblically. And so all of these good things that we see here on the slide were not happening as they were intended. In fact, it was quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, at the church in Corinth... Spiritual gifts were being misused and abused. At the church in Corinth, spiritual gifts were being misused and abused. Their their worship services became these chaotic contests in which worshipers tried to outdo each other in the exercise of their gifts. It was all about self and exhibition as opposed to edification. 
And this was especially true with regard to the gift of tongues. Somehow, in that church, at that time, the gift of tongues was elevated to be at the very top of the list of important spiritual gifts. And it became kind of like a spiritual badge of honor. You speak in tongues? Wow, you've really arrived. You must be really mature in your faith. But not necessarily, and we'll see that more in just a few minutes. Well, that gift of tongues is defined like this. It is the special ability to speak in unknown languages. The special ability to speak in unknown languages. And there are actually two types of tongues mentioned in the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, there's one type of tongues, which was literally earthly, literal earthly dialects, different languages from people from different places on the earth. These were given at Pentecost so that everyone gathered there in Jerusalem could hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language and then take it home. It was kind of a, a jump start for the church in missions. But, in first, or I'm sorry, this should say 1 Corinthians 14, I'm glad I caught that. In 1 Corinthians 14, tongues are a language all their own. In 1 Corinthians 14, tongues are a language all their own, a heavenly language, if you will, which is for the purpose of expressing worship and thanksgiving to God. Now, the Apostle Paul places great value on the gift of tongues, but he sees even greater value in prophecy, the gift of prophecy, which is defined like this. It is the special ability to speak God's message. The special ability to speak God's message. Now, it should be differentiated and made distinct from preaching or teaching the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, we looked at that last week. It makes a distinction between the gift of prophecy and the gift of preaching and teaching. Prophecy is speaking God's immediate message from the Spirit. God's immediate message from the Spirit. Now, this is always, always, always. Everybody say always. It is always under the authority of the Scriptures themselves. It is always under the authority of scriptures themselves. Now, Paul says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 14, we looked at this last week, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And so in the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 14, he does this comparison contrast thing. We called it the tail of the tape last week between tongues and prophecy. And if, I, this is really important. If, you, if this is your first Sunday here and you're kind of coming in cold to all of this, this is probably a challenging day to be here. It would be really, really helpful for you to go back and listen to last week's sermon because it is so foundational to what we're talking about today. But he compares and contrasts the two like this, tongues versus prophecy. One who speaks in tongues speaks to God, whereas one who speaks words of prophecy speaks to men. One who speaks in tongues speaks in a manner which is unintelligible. It's not a recognizable language in an earthly sense. But one who speaks words of prophecy, they are intelligible words that can be understood earthly. The one who speaks in tongues builds up themselves. And we talked about the fact that, hey, that's not a bad thing. We, we do spiritual disciplines. We spend time in the Word and in prayer, and uh, we do those things to build up ourselves. So that's not a bad thing. But one who speaks words of prophecy builds up the church. And Paul makes the conclusion that, hey, tongues are great, but prophecy is even greater. And now where we find ourselves today, in the remainder of chapter 14, Paul is going to give some specific instructions for how these gifts are to be exercised in public worship. Because as we've already noted, it was a chaotic mess in the Corinthian church. Now what this reminds us is that the solution to the abuse of spiritual gifts is not disuse. Again, that's the temptation for many of us. It's like, 
I've seen it done wrong. I've seen the chaos. I've seen the mess. We just won't go there. But Paul says, no, he could have done that. He could have looked at the Corinthians and said, hey, just knock it off altogether. You can't handle these gifts, and so don't participate at all. Rather, the solution to the abuse of spiritual gifts is not disuse, but proper use. But proper use. These gifts are important. These gifts matter. And so it is not an option to say, we just won't go there. We must follow the scriptures wherever they lead. And so proper use in public worship is the theme of 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 40. I was going to have you stand as we often do when we read text. This is a long one. We might start losing people somewhere in the middle of it. So I don't, I don't want that to happen. So if you can pledge to me that you will pay attention as I read this, I'll let you sit. All right? All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13, it begins like this. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing, praise, I will sing with my mind also. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a long text. It is a challenging text, but yet it is here and all scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful, and it is important to us to understand what it has to say. God, would you grow us individually in our worship of you, grow us collectively in our worship? May we never go beyond the bounds of scripture. 
So God, speak to us, we pray. I pray for your help in communicating to this. May your Holy Spirit speak through me, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so here in 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 40, the Apostle Paul gives us instructions for public worship. And the instructions are governed by what, what I'll call a guiding principle, an overarching principle that we will always come back to. And this guiding principle is actually communicated at the very end of the text in verse 40, where it says this, but all things should be done decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order. So the guiding principle for public worship, Paul says, is order. Our worship must always be decent and in order. What's the opposite of order? Disorder, confusion, chaos. And again, so it was in the worship in Corinth where everyone was speaking at the same time. They were, I mean, imagine they're both speaking unintelligible tongues as well as intelligible prophecies all at the same time. It was a free-for-all. Remember, we likened their worship to that, that period at the beginning of an orchestra concert where all the instruments are warming up and they're all playing at the same time. Everyone's doing their own thing. There are no distinct notes. There's no distinct song, no melody, no harmony, just a confusing uh, mess of sound a chaotic mess. And in contrast to this, it says in verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the principle is this. Our worship is to reflect God's character. Our worship is to reflect God's character, which is marked by order, clarity, and peace. Worship that is chaotic and confusing and self-glorifying is not worship that reflects God's character. It does not honor his name. So you see, the instructions that Paul gives us here in worship are not only practical, but they're also theological. All right, They have to do with God's very character. However, we can easily go too far the other way. Our worship can become so rigid, so ordered, so programmed, that it leaves no room for the Holy Spirit. And so we must be reminded that ordered worship is not, does not equal heartless worship. Ordered worship does not equal heartless worship. You know, Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, with their heads and their hearts, with both their intellect and their affection. Ordered worship does not equal heartless worship. But on the other hand, and this is really important, heartfelt worship does not equal mindless worship. Heartfelt worship does not equal mindless worship. And again, we see so many churches who go to one of two extremes. It's like, hey, we're going to be orderly and there's no place for the heart. Or, yes, we're going to be all about affection in the heart, but then it becomes this confusing, warm, fuzzy thing that doesn't have anything to do with truth. Mindless was a good description of the worship in Corinth. It was frenzy and emotion without substance. Which is why Paul says regarding tongues in verse 14, I think this is a very instructive passage right here. He says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what will I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. 
I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And I think that word also is the key. It reminds us again, this is both and. This is both head and heart, both intellect and affection. And so speaking in tongues or singing in tongues, as it refers to here, is not about checking your brain at the door or putting your mind in neutral. In fact, listen carefully, if you are ever in a setting where you are encouraged to turn your brain off, to put your mind in neutral, you should run away as fast as you can. You hear me? Because that's not God's way. It's Satan's way. Because what gets emptied, guess who's going to fill that? Satan's going to be all too glad to fill what is empty. Now, there will most certainly be thoughts in our minds that we must take captive. That's what the Bible says we are to do. We are to take thoughts captive, thoughts that are from the world, the flesh, even the devil. We must capture them and give them to Jesus, take them to the cross. But our minds are never, ever to be put in neutral or shut off when worshiping God. That is a very New Age, demonic concept. Rather than being emptied, we are to be filled with His Spirit and His truth. So heartfelt worship does not equal mindless worship. Our minds are always engaged. And I'm going to add one more of these that's not in your notes. So you may have to squeeze this in here, but listen carefully. Ordered worship does not equal comfortable worship either. Ordered worship does not equal comfortable worship. You see, we might be quick to dismiss anything in worship that makes us feel uncomfortable or that stretches us or that convicts us and to label it as, well, that's disorder because it makes me uncomfortable. Or anything that makes us feel like we're not tightly in control of everything in the situation. And again, say because we're uncomfortable, well, that's disorder, and it is to be rejected. But the Scriptures don't bear this out. How do you think Moses felt at the burning bush? Uncomfortable? Yet, well, that was an authentic, authentic encounter with Almighty God. It wasn't disorderly, but it was uncomfortable. How do you think they felt at Pentecost? Uncomfortable? Tongues of fire? Different languages being spoken? uncomfortable. It was orderly, but it was uncomfortable. It was certainly stretching, certainly convicting. And I even think of Isaiah's encounter with the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Uncomfortable? Absolutely. So be careful not to label worship that is uncomfortable as necessarily disorderly. It may be, but be careful. Ordered worship does not equal comfortable worship. Well, at the end of the day, The goal is to have ordered worship that engages both the head and the heart that the body will be beat, beat, not beat up, (laughs) that would be bad, Um, that the body will be built up. The goal is to have ordered worship that engages both the head and the heart so that the body will be built up. Just as Paul says in verse 26 of today's passage, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. If it doesn't build up, you're missing the point. And so as Paul gives instructions for public worship, he gives us this guiding principle that overarches all of it, which is order. There must be order in our public worship. Next, Paul identifies three, orders of, three areas of disorder in Corinth. Three areas of disorder in Corinth. Three areas where they are violating the guiding principle in their worship. And he gives instructions for their correction. And predictably, what do you think the first area of disorder in Corinthian worship was? It was tongues. It was tongues. 
No surprise there. We've already talked at length about their misuse and abuse of this gift and also its misuse and abuse today. Well, here are Paul's instructions. Again, Paul could have said, don't go there. Get rid of it altogether. That's not what he tells them. He says, listen, the proper use looks like this. First, he says, limit the number. Limit the number. Look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three. Now, I find this to be actually very rich with meaning. Let there be only two, or at most three. Paul allows a place in public worship for the exercise of the gift of tongues, but it is a very limited place, is it not? Two or three only, he says. Meaning that tongues must never become the focus in our public worship. It must never become a distraction. That's not the main reason that we're here. But yet God may use it and manifest himself in that way. So, two or three, a limited place. Next he says, take turns. Take turns. Back to verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. None of this talking over each other at the same time as you've been doing, trying to outdo each other. There must be order in our worship that reflects the character of God. So take turns, one at a time. Next, he says, require an interpreter. Require an interpreter. Back to verse 27. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself in God. Very simple. No interpreter, no public tongues. End of story. But feel free to speak to God in tongues and silence all that you want. Now, why does Paul make this strict prohibition on publicly speaking in tongues without an interpreter? Because of verse 16, where he says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, that's referring to tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And remember, that's the goal. That's the goal. Again, I think we learned something here about the nature of tongues. It is an expression of thanksgiving, giving thanks with our spirit. The problem is that without an interpreter in public worship, no one can join in. No one can affirm your thanksgiving. Rather, they are left frustrated and maybe even confused, reminding us that, listen carefully, public worship is a team sport. Public worship is a team sport, not an individual one. When we come together... We are not to be doing our own thing in isolation. We are part of a community that together in unity, like the Trinity, exercises our spiritual gifts to the glory of God. So it's not about you doing your thing in isolation by yourself, regardless of the rest. We are a team. We are a community. We are a family worshiping God in unity. Again, the goal is to have ordered worship that engages both the head and the heart so that the body will be built up. And tongues without an interpreter... It's not going to do that. It will just create frustration and confusion. Now, what's interesting is that Paul says that the tongue speaker may possibly be the tongue's interpreter. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Wow. So you're in a worship service. And you have a sense that the Holy Spirit is is working and manifesting himself in your life through your spiritual gift of tongues by speaking to God in an unknown language. That's great. God may very well be at work in this way. But 
Before you go public and expressing an unknown tongue, here's what you need to do. Number one, pray that you yourself would be able to interpret so that the body may be built up. For you see, the tongue speaker may actually be the tongue's interpreter. But if you are not the interpreter and no one else has emerged to interpret, you must publicly remain silent. All right? Maintaining the guiding principle of order. So Paul addresses the disorder of tongues in the church in Corinth by instructing them to limit the number, take turns, and require an interpreter. Now, here's what I do notice about this. It's, it's really quite beautiful. There's lots of order here, but there's also lots of freedom for God to speak and God to move. And I believe there's a lot for us to learn in that regard as well. The next area of disorder in Corinth was in the exercise of the gift of prophecy. For as wonderful as the gift of prophecy is, and Paul has been repeatedly saying so, it too can be misused and abused. It too can bring chaos and confusion to public worship. And so the first instruction that Paul gives regarding prophecy is this. He says, first, limit the number. That should sound familiar, right? Limit the number. Verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak. Very similar to that instruction on tongues. Two or three. Again, a limited role in the worship service so that it does not become the focus or a distraction. So what this tells us again is like, this is not the main event. This is not what we're all to be focused on. God may, on occasion, work in this way in public worship, but I don't even know that it's the expectation that this would happen all the time, but sometimes. Next, the next instruction for prophecy, test the prophecy. Test the prophecy. Verse 29 again. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And what do we ultimately use to weigh what others say? Number one, the scriptures. And number two, the Holy Spirit as he works in community. This is what 1 Thessalonians 5.20 is talking about when it says, do not despise prophecies. And again, I think we could fall into that category at times. Like, nope. Um, we're not going there, but do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Now, the question for us this morning, and it will have impact later in the sermon, whose job is it to test public words of prophecy? Whose job is it to test public words of prophecy? Who are the others that are to weigh what is said? I believe, as I look at the larger picture here, it is the job of the elders of the church to weigh and to test what is being said. There are those who are entrusted with shepherding the congregation, protecting the congregation, as well as feeding and guiding and leading the congregation. I believe it is the job of the elders to do that, and this will become a very important point for us in just a little bit, so hang on to that. Next, Paul's instruction for the gift of prophecy is take turns. Again, very similar to tongues. Take turns. Verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, Let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be all may be encouraged. Very similar to tongues, no talking over each other at the same time, no chaos, no confusion. There is to be order. And then finally, the one speaking a prophetic word is to engage both head and heart. Both head and heart. Look at verse 32. Very important verse. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, what, what is that talking about? The spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. Here, here's what I think it means. No one giving a prophetic word, and I would even say no one speaking in tongues for that matter, can ever say, I can't help it. I got to speak. God's at work. I got to speak. I can't help it. Here, Paul says otherwise. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. If it is God... If God is genuinely at work, you are in control, and you can help it, and you can follow these instructions for public worship, and you can wait your turn. And so we are never out of control. We are under the absolute influence of the Holy Spirit who speaks through of us, but we're never in a situation where it's like, wow, that person's over here in a corner just babbling in tongues because they can't help themselves. That is not how it works. It involves both the head and the heart. For both your spirit and your mind are fully present in the exercise of these spiritual gifts. Now, in verse 24, Paul goes on to share a positive outcome for when prophecy is properly exercised in public worship. He says this, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I believe this falls into a subset of prophecy known as a word of knowledge. And according to Paul, it can actually be a very powerful evangelistic tool. One gentleman gave this testimony about the ministry of Spurgeon exercising this particular gift. This is what this gentleman says about when he once visited a, a worship service where Spurgeon was preaching and Spurgeon exercised this gift of prophecy. He said, Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that, but he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day and four pence was just the profit. But how he should know that, I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. One example of the gift of prophecy being appropriately exercised. Next, uh, just reviewing. Three areas of disorder in Corinth. One, we had tongues. Two, prophecy, where the instructions are limit the number, test the prophecy, take turns, and engage both head and heart, which is once again, the goal is to have ordered worship that engages both the head and the heart so that the body will be built up. Well, there's one more area of disorder in Corinth. You ready for this one? It was women. Which is a very uncomfortable thing to stand up here and say, especially on Mother's Day. But before you start chucking things at me, um, let's dig a little deeper and see exactly what's going on here and what this means and how it applies to us. Look at the second half of verse 33. It says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I bet you all wish you were me right now, right, to have to explain this. So, 
This passage is typically dealt with in one of two ways. Uh, One is to say, that's just cultural, and it has nothing to do with us today. That was them, that's how they treated women, and that's that. The other is to say, well, I guess we better do exactly what it says and never allow women to speak in church. Again, we have these extremes, and I don't believe that either of these approaches is correct. I know the second one is incorrect, the one that says, well, women can't ever speak in the church, because just a couple chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, it says, but every wife who prays or prophesies, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, There's a whole other can of worms that we're not going to actually deal with today with head coverings, but what I want you to see right now in this particular text is that Paul acknowledges that women will pray and prophesy in the context of public worship. They have a voice. They're speaking. Except, I believe, in a particular area that is being referred to in 1 Corinthians 14. I I talk to you all the time about context, right? Right? Context, context, context. If you take um, this concept out of context, I think you're going to arrive at some very erroneous conclusions. But So let's zoom out a bit and look at the section 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let's look at that together. Let's look at the context, review what's going on, and see if we can understand. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Okay, we're in the section on prophecy. And let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Now when it says you can all prophesy, I take all to mean all, meaning both men and women. Let's move on to verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So, while it is true that men and women can prophesy in public worship, whose responsibility did I say earlier it was for weighing and testing the prophecy? The elders. Now, again, as a church... The leadership of this church, our church constitution and bylaws, it is our understanding of Scripture that eldership in the church is a role of headship that is to be fulfilled by the men of the church, just as it is to be filled by men at home. All right, there is no contradiction there. We believe God has specially called men in the home to be the spiritual leaders, the spiritual heads of their homes, not in an oppressive kind of a way, not in a dictatorial, demeaning kind of a way, but in a servant leadership kind of way where they love like Jesus. Similarly, God's household, the church, is very consistent with the households at home. God has called men in the church to be in those positions of spiritual leadership and headship. So, my take is this. Women are free and encouraged to exercise all of the spiritual gifts. Women are free and encouraged to exercise all of the spiritual gifts. However, women are not free to take upon themselves the role of headship as an elder, which includes the weighing and testing of prophetic words. In that sense, they are to remain silent. Does that make sense? Maybe not. (laughs) 
Women are not free to take upon themselves the role of headship as an elder, which includes the weighing of prophetic words. Now, I realize in our culture, (laughs) that doesn't play well, does it? It comes across as very sexist, backward, unenlightened, and certainly out of touch with the mainstream. But God's ways, have we not yet figured out God's ways are not our ways, and God's ways are higher than our ways, and that God ultimately knows what is best, and His way as revealed in Scripture is to assign men the responsibility of headship in the home and in the church. Again, not headship in a harsh, dictatorial manner, but in a loving, servant way, the way that Jesus did. And so, there was one more way actually, in which women in Corinth were contributing to disorder there. It's found in verse 35. It says, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. The situation seemed to be this. Women in that day were largely illiterate and uneducated. And so naturally, they had lots and lots of questions. And questions are a great thing. Questions are a wonderful thing, except when they dominate a public worship service, which is the context and what we're talking about here. And so um, also in that culture is women seem to be kind of finding their voice and they kind of be tending to be um, extremely feminist in that movement. Um, they would bring that into the church and, and they would speak out loud and ask lots of questions in ways that were disruptive in the public worship setting. Paul says, hey, The right way for this to be handled, to preserve the guiding principle of order, is ask your husbands at home. Ask your husbands at home. And there's a a byproduct of this, which I think is really important, is it challenged men to rise to spiritual leadership and headship in their homes. And I think that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. So, um, instructions for public worship, the guiding principle is order. Three areas of disorder in Corinth were tongues, prophecy, and women. Um, Paul gives us some pointed words in a conclusion in verses 36 through 40. A little bit of sarcasm here. He says to the arrogant, prideful Corinthians who were doing it their way, as opposed to God's way, he says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge, he should know better that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In essence, Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, it's like, hey, you guys, if you're really spiritual, if you're really mature, then you will understand and it will resonate with you that what I am teaching you is the way of God. And God's command is summarized in verses 39 and 40. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Why? Because the goal is to have ordered worship that engages both the head and the heart so that the body will be built up. Let's talk briefly about application and ask the question, how should we then live? Now, I don't know about you, but my head starts spinning and I have so many questions as to like, well, how would we practically put this into action? Tongues and prophecy and taking turns and interpreters and elders testing what is being said, that, that really, honestly, to me right now, sounds very overwhelming. And I think part of the problem is our worship gatherings in size compared to those of the first century. You know, we have 175 to 200 in a room here, there, across the way. We have people watching from home. They had probably 30, 40 people in a house, in a house. 
And so the smaller scale would certainly make a big difference when it comes to the application of Paul's principles of order and how that worked in a worship setting. So we have some special challenges there when it comes to trying to apply these things. But that doesn't take us off the hook. I don't believe that by, at all in the exercise of these gifts, but it does present for us some unique challenges. Let me ask you three personal questions for application this morning. First, does your worship lean more toward the head or the heart? Does your worship lean more toward the head or the heart? Now, I'm guessing for us here at First Baptist, what's probably going to be the answer? Probably the head, right? Probably the head. Our worship is pretty tightly programmed and centered on the Word, which in some ways is great. The Word part is great. Um, where we have some special challenges, I think, is we, you know, we've got this 1030 part where it's like, we've got to be ready for this live stream at 1030. So Holy Spirit, you better do what you're going to do in that 30 minutes, and there's no room for you, Right? That's a problem. And also, we're pretty uh, eager to get out of here by 12.15. I mean, 11.15, right? <laughs> Today, it might be 12.15. But uh, we got we to gotta beat the crowd to Bob Evans or Iron Skillet or wherever you guys are headed after this. And so, um, anyway, our worship is to be both head and heart, intellect and affection, spirit and truth. Next question, what are the consequences of this? So if, if you tend to lean more toward the head than the heart, what are the consequences of that? What are you missing? Or if you lean, tend to lean more toward the heart than the head, what are the consequences of that? What are you missing? How would those missing key elements hinder your ability to live a full or abundant life? And then last question, how might your worship become more of both head and heart? How might your worship become more of both head? If you're leaning toward one side and there needs to be some course correction, what practical steps can you take to be exactly where God would have you to be? Not, not an either or, but both spirit and truth, intellect and affection. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is challenging, and I thank you for that challenge. It keeps us engaged. It keeps us digging. It, um, I, th I think you do that on purpose sometimes to make us work at it, to to put forth the effort, and your word is true, that when we seek you, we will find you. So we seek you today. We seek truth. We acknowledge that, uh, God, we got a lot left to learn. I know that for me personally, a lot to learn. God, it is not our desire to be Pentecostal or charismatic. It is simply our desire to be biblical. And so would you please, please, please help us to do just that? And God, um, I pray against the evil one who would come to steal and kill and destroy and to divide and to plant seeds of dissension on a subject that is, in our world, pretty controversial. In the church world, it's pretty controversial. And so God, help us to always be about the main thing, being the main thing, and that is Jesus and him crucified. May we not divide over secondary issues. God, would you unite your church and help us to become all that you would have us to be. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.